Can we thank our guest, Elise Benjamin? Did you enjoy yourself? Loved it, yeah. Did you learn anything? We're the Chuckle Brothers, maybe. No, just had a really good time. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Uh, I have to say it wasn't recording. Oh, no, it was. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, through this. Well, through this, the big, the big one has to be climate change. We've got mm. to do something about climate change and we've got to get as many people waking up to what we need to do as soon as possible because in five years' time, we will have six years left, if that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's your uh, your aim then. So thank you very much, Elaine. Um, we're not quite sure if we know you, but thanks for listening. I was going to say, I'd like to say at this point, if you have a burning question that you want to ask us, then um, you can c- contact us through our website, which is the people peoplescountryside.co.uk, but also we're on the main social media channels of Facebook, Twitter, and also most recently Instagram as well. So if you want to put a question to us, fire it in our direction. Yeah. Now, the first question is Williams, and uh, it's probably the longest question we've asked. It's probably going to be longer than this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, where you go? Maybe I should have made this question far more succinct. Um, so the question goes, the original 1978 animated film of Richard Adams' Watership Down was seen as being too brutal for children to watch. In fact, it was given a U certificate when it was originally released. Uh, with the 2018 version made for the BBC being a much more watered-down version, uh, which I understand it is, should we, should we protect children this way or should children, as the original film intended, be made aware what impact we're having on the natural order around us by seeing it from the animal's point of view? Now, I, I'll, just pre, I'll just say why I've did this question. Well, I remember when I first... I mean, I don't think you've seen this, at least, have you? No. The original. The original was very brutal. It very much showed what this, this uh, Warren of group of rabbits had to go through uh, to find a new home and they, the, the trials and tribulations they had. But a lot of it came from the action of men or the action of man. There was one scene where they actually are gassed out of their warren, which is particularly particularly brutal. And I was actually recently talking to a good friend of mine and they said that they had nightmares from that film. But is that should we really be, should we really be protecting our children from it or should we really show the, 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 the true effects of man's behaviour? To, to animals. I have to say, it's probably 40 years since I've watched the original. So I watched the original through children's eyes. And I'm also, uh, at Christmas, I watched the latest version. And uh, I actually don't remember it being that brutal at the time, the original. But I, well, I'm wondering whether or not the, uh, the second version has been slightly rewritten. It seemed to be more a, 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 a focus humanity's social structures as opposed mm. to in humanity's impact so i i I'd, I'd like to go back and watch the original because I, i'm not convinced they're identical yeah storylines but you said about should we be uh sh- showing the brutal truth i think you can show the brutal truth too often because we get it normalized and the message doesn't get through after a while so a bit of brutality is is good in the honest message but you get inured to it as well. Well, you... I, I I didn't see the film because I was too busy being a teenage punk. So mm. it, I'm just just slightly the wrong age. The book I have very faint memories of from a long, long time ago. Um, and maybe I should see the film now. I do think to some extent a cartoon will kind of almost sanitises a bit. Mm. So if if we do want to influence the thinking of children and not upset them too much, a cartoon has a softer approach mm. i'm thinking you know tom and J- jerry was pretty brutal really mm, think about was, it. Yeah, yeah. but we just laughed and it, it was interesting because it reminded me of a campaign that the meat industry put together in the i think it must have been late mid to late 80s so there was a rise in vegetarianism and they were getting worried so they went into schools and they did an adopt a butcher campaign 
and they showed the, the, the meat process, which included abattoirs, and it turned a whole generation of seven-year-olds into vegetarians. Mm. So it can be very powerful, um, but it didn't seem to traumatise children. It just made them think more. Mm. So I think it's a difficult balance. Really. So do you think that maybe kids are more robust in that sense, that they're not, they're not as sensitive as they possibly might be seen, and, but then also picking and choosing what, how you do it and maybe have more impact? I think it needs to come with a conversation. So if you show a child yeah. something that is quite not traumatic, traumatic is the wrong word, but something that will, will, would make them dwell on it, on it you need mm. to have a conversation with them mm. and, and tease out how they feel. Yeah. Uh, uh, otherwise you're just leaving them hanging with it, with it hanging over their shoulders for years. I mean, uh, I remember the first, as you say, it was, a car- it was very much a soft cartoon. I just took it as entertainment as a child. Somehow I missed the message, actually. I just remember a lo- lovely soundtrack and fluffy rabbits and one was killed. And that's all I really remember. But the, the second ver- version that's recently been released, I found it was actually much darker visually because uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I found it very sinister. Right. Being, and it seemed to be more about a social comment about us yeah. as opposed to man's impact. So I felt it was more about enjoyment, the first one, but if messages are, are, are to be elicit a response, they need to be powerful. But, but you're you saying it needs a conversation around it as well, not just a message. Would yeah, you? Because, well, you've just, you've just explained why, mm. because you missed the point of the film when you yeah. saw it the first time. Yeah. So if there'd been a conversation, it might have given you a bit deeper understanding mm. of the film. Mm. My, my thinking is less about this film and more about an environmental message. Environmental messages need to have a long lifespan to make an impact. How can we have the message in the language we use, how can that have a long-term effect on the people we're talking to? I was going to say, actually, that you know how you were saying about um, that if you're too brutal all the time, and if it's too, it becomes normal, then it doesn't have that same impact, does it? Mm. Um, so, you, like I said, you have to be quite careful with it. You have to have co- be able to in- have conversations around it as well, or encourage conversations. But then you have to find the language that actually most people understand, or most people will switch on to. So, there was one thing about um, I think where the podcast, the last podcast we had, we were, um, it was raised that you don't want to sort of go into it negatively. For mm. example, you know doing the guilt trip oh why haven't you done this why are you flying so much why are you why aren't you why are you still using so much single use plastic just to give two examples mm. so you, you want to have a conversation that actually engages people right and you give them something to get involved with not just say don't do this yeah you know yeah. but at least with your with you going out there doing all your environmental work do you notice there's a point with the people you're talking to the audience their eyes glaze over. It, it's, oh, here comes another environment. I noticed years ago, I, I'm, I'm, but I, I now make sure that the way I approach it means that that doesn't happen. So, so how there's do you been a growing, growing amount of research done over the last sort of 10 years or so that I'm, I'm very familiar with because friends have been involved in it, around messaging. And, and I remember from, from 20, over 20 years ago now, um, having a conversation with an old school friend and she had no idea about climate change. Mm-hmm. And she just suddenly got really scared, and th- and has done nothing since. Right. And so th- the research has shown that that what you don't do is you don't scare people. Mm. You don't make them feel uncomfortable. 
Mm. You have to do it in a way that empowers people, that makes people think that they can do be something. part of that yeah. change. The interesting thing is that is that the dialogue is shifting because with the, the report last year saying we've got 12 years left to do something about climate change, more people are actually waking up to the fact that they need to do something and it's energising people in mm. a different way. Mm. Not everyone, and there are still those people who you have to be mm. careful with, you can't scare them. Um, but more people are empowering themselves so mm. that I think that culture is shifting a bit. Is it quick enough? Sadly, no, because we've still got a target every decision maker in the world mm. really yeah okay that came from uh, watership down i have to say i must go back and watch the original and uh, have a conversation around it because i think i missed the point completely on I, it i recommend going back to watch it just for the um, just for the music in, itself mm. uh, just from a film point of view because it's mm. great and it's also got the late john hurt doing the voice of hazel as well which mm. is incredible Mm. So yeah, yeah. He was the older one, wasn't he? That died well, he towards was, the end. He was the leader, basically. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay, so that question. I'm not going to reiterate what that was because I say that question was longer than the actual podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Sure, Stuart, you've had longer questions than yeah. this. Yeah, I, I remember you having one question which had about, I think, about four questions buried in it. No, it had seven components. Seven, yeah. Oh, seven components. So yeah. I was underestimating. Okay, so we will move on to question two uh, in the People's Countryside podcast, Environmental Debates. And our guest is Elise Benjamin. You are a green activist from Oxford. Is that how you like to be known? Um, I just like to be known as Elise, really, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, this is your question, uh, what you want to raise. Oh, should we be protecting the green belt from development? Should we? Yes. Why? Because it's there to, to, to give us a green lung. Mm. Because without that green space, you know, we just end up... Urbanisation is, is destroying people's lives. It's detaching our children from nature, which isn't helping us tackle mm. the environmental problems around us. Um, we need those lungs to deal with pollution. We need the trees. Yeah, when they originally set up the uh, Green Belt... Uh, uh, the concept was it, it, it would be protected land not built on. Now there's some people who argue, well, actually, that should be expanded out a little bit further so you can build on it, and then the green belt's a little bit further out. What's wrong with that? Um, because eventually, if we expand and expand and expand, all the towns will meet up. Mm. And, and I, I, always, I always think back to a, when I first moved to Oxford in the early 90s, I worked um, in a little research unit with someone who was on secondment from... Japan, from East Japan Railways, and he, as soon as his wife and kids arrived, they decided to go off and, and drive around the countryside, and he, and he came back into work on the Monday, and I said, well, how was it? And he said, you have spaces between your towns. Mm. Mm. And what he'd grown up with was that every single road was just developed. Yeah. And okay. so you lose that contact with, with nature. I remember going to Los Angeles, and we drove for about an hour and a half in LA, and in decent traffic, because LA's got terrible traffic, of course. We drove about an hour and a half, in decent, decent traffic, decent speed, but we never seemed to leave the city. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe that we'd actually driven that long. I mean, you drive an hour and a half from Oxford now, you, you're going to be in the centre of London, aren't you? So I couldn't believe we actually drove that far without leaving the city, basically. Well, there are also wider benefits to the Green Belt. So um, there is a serious problem with mental health issues, Mm. Not just with adults, but even even worse with young with children, mm. and young people. 
Um, I remember when I was, I mean, my daughter's doing her A-levels at the moment, when I was doing my A-levels, friends and I would just go and sit in a field. We lived in London, but we were on the edge of London, so we'd go and sit in a field to relax and, can't, and just forget about everything. Mm. And it really helped me get through my exams. And that's why, you know, pockets of green space and green mm. belt is so important. Should we be looking at using our current housing resources better? Because there's an awful lot of empty properties knocking around properties above shops that are empty uh is is it uh should we be looking to build new stuff or should we be looking to free up our current stock better so with empty properties um what what's happened is we've we've this this country's housing has become a marketized mm. so there are foreign investors who are just buying up flats in apartments in cities and not renting them out we need to change the tax system Mm. To, to better be able to, to deal with that problem because um, no one should be allowed to have a second home that's empty mm. when there are people who are homeless. Mm. Um, as far as, as other empty properties are concerned, there are, there are rules around acquiring empty properties and I know because I've worked on a couple with the council that you can do it, but it takes mm. a long time. Um, we, have, we do have a housing crisis in, in Oxford for sure. We have had since 2005 pretty much is a long time but but what it's for me what it's taught me is that the whole way of dealing with housing policy has to be linked with economic policy it has to be linked with where people need to live to work mm. slapping 300 homes on a bit of land somewhere with no public transport links mm. will just create a whole host of other problems around mm. traffic and isolation um lack and um, lack of community i was going to say yeah that that that's the the point that I was going to raise is surely there is a, maybe a common ground or a middle ground with it with the development if you if you could actually make it a lot more uh, sustainable and make it a lot more green friendly I suppose being able to have green corridors within the development for example because of course being being a bit allow movement of animals through your, through that through that area for example but if you're going to have end up <coughs> having these these just building houses for the sake of it. You're not going to have anything there. Well, houses are built for profit. And the problem is that that means that that a developer will squeeze as many houses onto a site as they can. So you won't get the, you know, the the, the 1930s street across the road from where I grew up Mm. had a central green that all the kids could play on. Yeah. I mean, if you walk through the centre of London, you, you, it's amazing how many times you'll come across some sort of green space because it was built into the design of the housing, even just off of somewhere like Oxford Street, which is one of the busiest streets in the, in the world, potentially, you'll still find, I don't know, they're not huge green spaces, but you'll still find them, you'll still find those pockets of green that I must that I find them really useful in London in particular, because you want to get away from the sort of hustle. And there are ways of doing density without impacting on amenity space, which is the, sorry, the planning term. I used to share planning committee, so I lapse into planning terms all the mm. time. Um, I mean, Barcelona is a good example. So there are rows of blocks of apartments. Um, what if there is any parking? It's underground. But what what's significant is that the centre of the street is one long strip of playground benches. Sometimes there's a cafe or a little mm. newsagent. Mm. So there is a safe space where people can meet, and that's what that's what we should have. On a societal level, uh, I always remember this conversation I had with a, it was a taxi driver, and he'd only just arrived, arrived from India, 
and uh, he, he drove me uh, on this journey and we went past this old people's home and as we went by he said to me well, what's that I said well it's old people's home well what happens there I said well that's where we put old people to be looked after and it, he said do you know in India we don't have anything like that we look after our old people uh, and uh, so my point is um, should we see it as, a, as an aspirational right to actually own or have our own private residence that's maybe too big for us you know uh, we have independent living but like in India that big families live together if families don't get on how can we get on as a community is our aspirations of actually we want our own place is that sustainable no not at all I mean not if you talk to anyone under about 35 it isn't because they can't even get a, a foot on the ladder mm. So we have to rethink how we do housing because it's become out of reach for a lot of people. I, I grew up in social housing. I grew up in a council house. I <clears throat> oh, still live in a council house. And Stuart still lives in, my mum still lives in that same house, still as a council resident. And I think, there's, I think there needs to be a de- massive destigmatisation of living in social housing. Because you live in a council house, it seems to be... I remember when I was growing up and I grew up in the 80s, that there was a bit, there was, even then there was stigmatisation of living in council house that you're, you know, you could do better. You could, you could, to own your own house was almost like the goal, you know, was mm. the, it still is, you know, it feels like that's, the, that's what you should be going for. But if there was a, a decent stock of social housing that people could use and actually go and move to, you uh, utilise or whatever, you, whatever you need it, um, it would make, it would take so much pressure off of people trying to, get a job, make loads of money to get a house that they will be paying for for the rest of their lives that they don't necessarily need. I remember there's, we've got a really good friend, well, I've, I've, we, I, my wife is Finnish, right? And so in Finland, there is a really big social housing stock. And she could literally, she sold her flat and she was able to then basically go and find a property, go and find a flat. And she's moved several times and it's fine. It's just... That's her need at that time, and everybody needs home. Everyone needs a house to live in, don't they? And that, you know, so yeah. But do have we drifted too far away from the family unit? So we all want our own individual places. Should we have our own individual places? Oh. I think we have drifted too far away from family unit. It's interesting. Someone said to me um, what affected her, and she grew up in a, a council estate in um, near Manchester. What affected her? was no, noticing, because she, she's in her 70s now, how they were suddenly starting to build council houses without a dining room. Mm. So the families stopped sitting together. Mm. And that's what's happened. A lot of families don't sit mm. together at all. Mm. And so you don't have that, that social element. So mm. we're, we're creating all these little individual units. Um, and it's interesting cause, because in Oxford, it, it, what's, what's gone wrong is that everyone wants their own individual space, but because property prices are so high, what you now end up with is couples in their 30s sharing houses. Mm. So you don't get that individual space anyway, so you're mm. almost creating a different family dynamic. You, you Could it also be that you know that you, you put your perceived need for housing is actually doesn't match with your actual need of housing? So, you know, I, I talk about the place I live, the place we're recording this podcast in. You know, me and my wife live here. Um, and it's a small space, but we it's enough for us. 
and we don't really crave too much more. We would probably want an extra room potentially, but we know that we don't need any more. So is there a potential of also this, 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 definitely this thing of ownership and people want to own their own house. And because more people want to own their own house, they want to own a bigger house. And because you've got a bigger house, you have to have more housing to house more people, house the people. So then it, then it fuels that drive to, to push out through the green. There is also a problem because generally when a lot of majority of developments will build properties that are of a similar size. Mm. So if you're living in a house that you're that is too big for you, your family have all moved away, you can't downsize and stay within that community, and that mm. creates all sorts of problems mm. as well. So mm. that there is a history of, of poor um, planning, and it's because the properties or planning is treated in silos, and mm. you need to think about the wider mm. picture. Mm. Well, there is, well, I was going to say there is one model that really that fits in with what you said about enough space which is co-housing, and co-housing models are really good. So um, if you visit the co-housing that was built in Stroud a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine has a house there. It has enough bedrooms for her, her husband and her kids, a good-sized living room, a good-sized garden. If someone comes to stay, they book a room in the communal house. So there is a communal building right in the middle of the development of houses in the pedestrianised bit, and there's a communal kitchen there, there's a social space, and there are visitor rooms. Mm. We've drifted slightly away from the green belt, but it's all sort of, it, it all influences it. But when I heard this question, I wrote this sentence down that was on my mind. Um, that I think this is uh, a lot less to do with should we protect the, protect the green belt. Um, it, it's more that I, I start to question, should we look more efficiently at our use of assets, housing, stocking, etc., resources and infrastructure before building new roads and houses and mining new materials. So is this an opportunity to actually look at how we, we, are, how we consume wider than housing? And is this an opportunity to... It's more than about how we consume. It's about what we perceive to be what we need. Mm. So if you look at the, you know, we've got Oxfordshire has a growth board. And, and their aim is basically more jobs, more mm. development. Um, they only really have an element of housing in their plan because colleagues of mine pushed for it because it, it didn't occur that housing should be part of the mix. Mm. So when you look at the, the battles that are going on in Oxfordshire and about, about growth and about development, we don't need more jobs particularly, certainly not in Oxford. We, we need to be able to house people. 46,000 people commute into Oxford every day to work, which is astonishing when you think mm. of... The population is 152,000, 33,000 of that is students, yeah. so another 46,000 people are coming in every day. Mm. That says that, that something is broken. Um, what we need to do as a county, and I think this needs to be reflected across the country, is look at what we need in, in the way of jobs and housing, what types of jobs and housing, where the transport links are, then a look at what land is available and what is possible to build on without impacting on the green belt, without having a, a negative impact on people's quality of life. Mm. Mm. And, and it needs to be done as a whole, not in pockets. So there's a bit of land there, let's just build on it. Mm. So the second question in this episode of the People's Countryside podcast is, should protecting the green belt, should we be protecting the green belt from development? What do you think? And uh, we want to develop this podcast into a live stage show called uh, Live No Scripted, William? Yeah, it's going to be an experiential stage show, isn't it, yeah. Stuart? Yeah, um, he's passing it back to me. Yeah. Well, I'm not passing it back okay. to you. 
it's not we're, we're not the Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> to me, to you, to me, to you. Yeah, it's going to be an experiential stage show. Um, part of the part part of the actual show is going to be in this very podcast format, and the second half is going to it's going to involve a theatre production group who will do a a. A show can you actually tell me what I can't remember what the stage show is <laughs> no yeah. I am passing it back to you yeah well I mean, I'm going to do the format of the podcast and then turn it into like a, a have a drama component That's in there it, yeah. and we got a meeting in on March the 1st with uh, this egg which is a theatre company yeah and uh, they don't really know what we're going to ask them but we want them to be stakeholders in this idea and to develop the um the drama component and we also want to uh, bring Earthwatch into this and they don't know we're coming yet but it's all about stakeholders and people who have got an interest in this we've got the concept in place we just need partners to come in it's growing the podcast beyond the podcast but the pod this would also be formed part of that podcast as well won't yeah. you so the actual live shows will be recorded for the podcast yeah. uh, so you'll be able to listen to us and you'll be able to come and watch us make fools of ourselves on stage as well. And right? you can come and make fools of yourself on stage as well with what we got. But, but, yeah, well, the ex- that's the part of the experiential part of it. You'll actually be able to come on stage and be a participation. Yeah, be a prat alongside us. Yes, right. Yes, no, we're no, 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 no good as prat as we are, though. I think <laughs> we're the best ones. Well, you are. Anyway, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> to me, to me, to you, to me, to you. Okay, the third question in uh, People's Countryside Podcast, Episode 7. Um, this is my question. It's quite short for a change. Yeah. Should we be suspicious of airports and oil companies if they take steps to be more environmentally sustainable, or is this just greenwash? It's good to engage them, isn't it? It's good that they will actually engage the, the, that need. I mean, yeah. airports in general are probably one of the worst polluters in the world, uh, but if they want to take steps and they recognise it and they want to take steps to improve that, then it's a good thing. You, I think it goes back to the whole thing of having a good open conversation, doesn't mm. it? Mm. I mean, you finding out why their motivation for it in the first place and whether it's uh, it's from a good place. Our guest is Elise Benjamin. Uh, what do you think? Do you, are you suspicious when large companies that potentially are very high in pollutants and not really environmentally sustainable. Are you suspicious when they try and be green? I'm not suspicious. I think we have to welcome it. But I think we have to welcome it with the the knowledge that we need to keep an eye on what they're actually doing. Mm. Um, To me, it's it's a reflection of of person power. Mm. The more we challenge these companies, the more likely they are to try and do something. Um, and I do know from people who work in, in industry and, and um, especially around sustainability that there are companies that have been attacked when they are actually genuinely doing the right thing. This question came about because uh, a while back uh, I was approached by uh, an environmental company who work at Heathrow uh, man- uh, managing the, the nature reserves around the airport within, within the boundaries of the airport. And they, they wanted me and William potentially to run workshops around the airport in the, in the, in the nature to engage uh, travellers, to engage the workforce on the airport, to engage the management of the airport, just get them aware of the nature around them and making it part of their daily lives. Well, we promoted that on social media and somebody said uh, oh, we were selling out because uh, it was greenwash, because 
uh, Heathrow were, were, were just um, manipulating us into, into doing that. We weren't even talking to the management of Heathrow. It was a supplier to the management of Heathrow we were working with. So that's where the question came from. But we, we, there's a culture of protesting uh, and uh, there's also a culture of negotiating. Where is the boundary between the two? When is it right to protest and when should we sit around a table? Well, there's something in the middle in between the protesting and, and, the, and the engagement, yeah. which is the monitoring. Yeah. So it's the monitoring that will tell you when it's right to protest. Who's to monitor and what, how do we maintain their, their motives? Well, there are NGOs that are doing that anyway. We just need to make sure we support the ones that are doing it. So there are various different... I mean, obviously the, the standard big NGOs are, are keeping an eye on companies' performances, mm. but then there are, are organisations like Corporate Watch, which were set up, was set up in Oxford, as it happens, specifically to, to, to see what corporations really are doing. So the, the data and the knowledge that they gain will help those of us on the ground to decide mm. where, we, where we put our energies. I mean, I've noticed in various wars and conflicts and, and uh, environmental arguments that um, until it's sat down around a table, nothing really happens unless a conversation happens. You know, it may be motivated uh, to happen by, by a protest, but nothing is really settled. But are we too quick to protest? No, I don't think so. I mean, um, I was thinking about recently having a conversation because with um, Extinction Rebellion becoming more and more popular as a, <clears throat> a way of tackling the fact, of addressing the fact that climate change has to be dealt with. Um, I was thinking about the campaign against the Newbury Bypass. Um, mm. So I was involved in, this was 22 years ago now, I was involved mm. in the Oxford Support Group because it's the same road, basically. And the one thing that wasn't addressed, and there were a small number of us saying it, was we wouldn't have to get to this stage of people living in trees to mm. protect the trees if the local, local campaigners and residents had kept an eye on what the council were doing. Mm. Because then they would have seen it coming three or four years earlier. Mm. But they hadn't. They just, they just bypassed the local decision makers. So they just didn't know that this was planned. So I think you have to you have to be there at the start mm. to see what's really going on with local decision making with with the big companies before you decide on whether direct action is because mm. it should it should only be a last resort really. It's almost yeah. It, it, when the protesting starts to happen, it's when it's happening. So I remember I remember when the newbie bypass was built. Yeah, there were people in trees and protesting, but that was already being built. You know, it was it was already in construction, wasn't it at that point? So, yeah. Although that, that, that campaign and the m and Link Road campaign and, and, the, and there are various other campaigns around the country did have one, one achievement, which was the roads building programme was massively cut. Mm. Mm. Well, of course, the biggest hot potato now at the moment is, of course, is this, this expressway between yes. Oxford and Cambridge, which... Which the developers are already lining up for. Yeah. Back to the second do you, do you think we'll, Do you think that they protest has started early enough with that process though it's the same with hs2 as well yeah I, I, and i think it's interesting because because the, the mistake this time is that that expressway links oxford and cambridge basically two of the most articulate populations in the country so they're up against they're really the the, the the government is really up against it because there are some very very well-versed people very well connected people mm. who are campaigning this time so they they are doing they're doing protests but they're trying to head off the need to go down the route to direct action. 
Where, where, is the, where is the boundary of when protesting actually becomes counterproductive, though? Can it be taken too far? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen it a few times. I can't think of any examples offhand, but I have seen situations where someone will just... They take their pro- protest to the point where no one's actually listening to them anymore. Mm. Um, so, you, so when you're protesting, you've always got to have a mind that you're... No matter what your issue is with whoever you're protesting against, they're a human being as well. And mm. if you don't try and talk to them... I was just thinking of the laboratory, the animal experiment laboratory in Oxford. And there were, I remember there being protests that were taken really, really far, like ridiculous lengths. Um, I, won't go to, I can't remember the exact details, but I'm sure there was a desecration of a grave. There were people personally targeted. People, yes. Just so, like the vivisection thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember I used to cycle down Parks Road on a daily mm. basis and see them outside there. And they were there all the time. But it didn't really seem to... It didn't really, it didn't, it obviously didn't achieve what they wanted because it's open now. It's been open for many, many years. But they seemed very ag- aggressive towards... Yeah, so I tried to have conversations with some of the people involved in that because from, from my perspective, I was a city councillor and it was going through the planning process at the time and, and, mm. and the majority of the people who were protesting did not engage with the planning process at all. They didn't try and engage directly mm. in conversation with the university. It was mostly about shouting and demonising and it actually set back the cause of the debate that needs to happen around animal testing by mm. years. So that, that's the core of it then, isn't it, when it comes to protesting... I mean, we're going really right off of your question. Yeah, are we suspicious? Are we suspe- being suspicious? But yeah. it, it, it actually, you, you, you need to... I was thinking right at the start, it's the engagement, isn't it? Mm. And engagement in the right way with the right people. I'll yeah. tell you a personal story about that targeting. Uh, in them days, I used to uh, maintain a number of the Oxford College gardens. I had the contract to do that. And I actually received a letter through the post threatening me uh, because I was a gardener working for the university and I know people who are cleaners, scouts, cooks. So purely by association. Yeah, yeah so, that's so you, you target the wrong people. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, it, it's like the debate at the moment around that's happening in universities about no platforming and whether you, you silence people. You, you will not make effect change if you just shout, shout down and, and exclude the people you don't agree with because I've seen people change but, but only when you talk to them. So, uh, should we be suspicious of these companies, organisations? Should we just finish with that? Yeah, I was, I was going to say, actually, that, you know, that it could have been that in, in this instance. Or it doesn't have to be. In any instance, it could be whoever's building something, whoever it is, they kind of, they, they reach out to the, the people that are against it and protesting against it. Uh, but then you've got to be aware of what they're saying and whether they're actually going to back up their whatever this whatever they're telling you with actual actions i suppose mm. right i would say you have to be constructively suspicious mm. yeah so i think i think that's that, that's pretty that's succinct good, yeah that's a, a good way to end it anyway that's the third uh, question on uh, this seventh episode of the people's countryside podcast how can people contact us william you can go through our website, thepeoplescountryside.co.uk. We're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, our next guest, we haven't actually 100% lined it up, but uh, there are a number of names we're talking to at the moment. Uh, we've got a couple of really interesting names coming up, um, which will be announced in the future. Um, at this point, um, we always try to mention this. Um, what 
we'd like to know what are you doing whilst you're listening to this podcast, Stuart, don't we? We want yeah. to know what, what, where are you right now? We, we've had we've had somebody who listens to this podcast when they're painting. Yeah. Um, we've always been fascinated by how that affected your painting. Um, are, are you on your commute to work? Are you jogging? Uh, what what's, what are you doing right now? Mm. And uh, we're developing the content in this podcast. We're working with DivaWeb to produce some uh, uh, some uh, what do you call it uh, trailers and promotional stuff. So if you're another podcaster and you want to uh, contribute, uh, want a little promotion on our podcast, let us know. But Diva Web are working with us. And, and the best way for us to spread the word for this podcast is if you can think of somebody right now that you think would really enjoy listening to us having this chat about the environment, etc., etc., etc. Why don't you share share this with them? And uh, yeah, thanks very much. And uh, we're going to be on more mainstream platforms like Spotify and uh, iTunes. iTunes. We're yeah. going to aim for all the mainstream podcasts and then take us live on the stage. As we said at the beginning, we're dedicating this podcast to Leon Gledhill, who was a listener and supporter of this podcast and our wider work. Can we thank our guest, Elise Benjamin? Did you enjoy yourself? Loved it, yeah. Did you learn anything? The, were the Chuckle Brothers, maybe? No, just had a really good time. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. Uh, I have to say it wasn't recording. Oh, no, it was. <laughs> uh, you might have also picked up the cat again. Yeah. She, she's been meowing in the, in the other room. Yeah, she's turning into a panther. Cause, uh, <laughs> that's our buzzer to tell us to end. So uh, we will um, leave you with the, all those thoughts. Thank you very much, Elise. Thank you. Uh, and from William and I, we'll see you and you'll hear from us very soon.